Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. and welcome to the History of England, episode 264G, Rebel Queen 8, Duke. Just because I haven't mentioned this for a while, you might like to know that I am a proud member of the Agora Podcast Network. We have a load of brilliant podcasts, which you can see at agorapodcastnetwork.com. You might be interested also to know that one of our number, Heather Tesco, has now set up a Tudor radio station, no less done with modern deck, of course, not Tudor tech. But all the programmes are about the Tudors, and it's called the Tudor Radio Network. If you want to know more, go to TudorRadioNetwork.com, and also I'll put a link on my website. Well, over the last week then, we came to the end of the story about how Mary overcame all the obstacles to earn her right to the throne. This time, I thought we might reflect on what has just happened, and why it's just happened. And then we also have some players to say goodbye to at last. We must say farewell to John Dudley, although he has one more surprise for us up his gown. Sounds a little rude, doesn't it? Oh, matron. We'll leave till tomorrow the final chapter in the life of our hero of this story, Jane Grey, and how history has viewed her life. What I will do with your permission, well, without it actually, sorry about that, is to concentrate on the events as they affect Jane and Northumberland, and then leave the detail of the events at the start of Mary's reign until 2019. Yes, 2019, we are that close. And then next week, there's a brilliant interview with Nicola Tallis. Sorry, an interview with the brilliant Nicola Tallis, as you should jolly well know by now. And there's the quiz, the poll, the prize draw, all the fun of the fair. 
It's not too late to buy a membership of the History of England for the people you love for Christmas and indeed the people you're less keen on. I'm not fussy. Just go to the History of England website and you'll see how to do it there for you. So, what had just happened here? One of the things that struck me is just how different a couple of key particulars are about the real story of Jane Grey to the one I've had in my head all these years and that I was taught at school. The first one is the idea that Jane Grey was a usurper, when in fact it was, of course, Mary that was the rebel queen, Mary that was the usurper. But the main one, of course, is the inevitability of the victory of Mary, or at least that's what I had in my head and had been taught. The idea that, really, Jane was doomed from the start. It was a feeble attempt to usurp the throne, which, of course, belonged to Mary. Jane never had a hope. This is a story that belittles three of the principal players in particular. Firstly, it belittles Edward VI. It is now generally agreed by historians that it was Edward that initiated and developed the device for the succession, obviously, I'm well aware this means diddly squat. We'll simply wait for the next round of revisionism in the endless dance of history. But, for the moment, this is how the device is seen. It's also quite probable, though I'm sure arguable, that Edward had every right to make the decision he made to make Jane his heir. There's no legal minority in terms of kings. Edward was king in all respects, should he choose to assume that role. So, back to that point. The rebel here was not Jane, it was Mary. Secondly, the story belittles Northumberland. Northumberland in the traditional story is presented as the evildoer, grasping, vile, ambitious, willing to sacrifice everything on the altar of his ambition to see his son and his daughter-in-law die. Recent historians have fought against this story and the basis on which the legend lies is shaky. So, in the old legend, Northumberland influences and manipulates Edward into changing the succession. What is the basis for this? Why does he do it? Well, apparently, it's because of his overweening pride. So why is pride always overweening, I might ask, as I write? I don't think I've ever heard of anyone overweening in any other sense. What is it to wean? Is it connected to weaner? A word I heard my daughters use to describe some boy they met when they were young? Should the Incredibles face a battle between the underminer and the overweener, I ask myself? I looked it up. The word comes from wean, apparently, a Germanic word to think. Been around since the 14th century. Huh, anyway, overthinking pride sort of thing. Anyway, Northumberland's apparently overweening pride and ambition. A terror, apparently, that if Mary came to the throne, she'd find out about terrible things he'd done and he'd suffer for it. But it's not clear what these terrible things were meant to be, that he could never let Mary acquire the throne, especially if we accept that it was Edward, not Northumberland, who created the devise. Only when he'd launched Jane Grey onto the throne, in accordance with his master's wishes, I might point out, did he cross a Rubicon over which it would be difficult for Mary to allow him to swing back. Though many of his colleagues did so, it should be noted. Mary was pretty reasonable. Another reason cited is one of ambition and tyranny, where, in fact, historians point out that his manner of dealing with his colleagues was involving and consensual, much more so than Somerset, while accepting also that he could often be a bully and a thumper of tables when blocked. There are two obvious reasons why Northumberland gets such a bad press. For Mary, he was a very convenient scapegoat. By blaming everything on Northumberland, she could excuse the rest of the council. And this is good thinking, and part of the continuing story of Mary's reign, that she was no fool. She realised she needed a political nation on her side. Chopping everyone's legs off was not an option. Secondly, Northumberland's religion. 
As we'll hear in a tick, Northumberland did not make himself popular with Protestants at the end of his life, and so he doesn't get the John Fox makeover as a Protestant hero. A person's reputation always looks better with the John Fox makeover. Northumberland became a dirty word for the Protestants. So what was the truth then? Well, if I knew the truth, I'd be a billionaire, if that's what you become from writing history books about obscure 16th century political leaders. Is that what you get from writing history books about obscure 16th century political leaders? For what it's worth, which certainly isn't billions, it seems to me that it's impossible to clear Northumberland entirely from accusations of dirtier motives. Jane, in particular, was livid with the man. His life was wicked and full of dissimulation. So was his end thereafter. Jane's contempt for him was total. And for her, his crime was one of exceeding ambition. He was just power-mad then, maybe. It's very difficult, actually, to conceive that Northumberland had no desire for power, no enjoyment of it, and a wish to preserve it. But having said that, I concur with the modern view that in the main, Northumberland was just doing his job to rehabilitate his family name. It is, of course, a personal weakness, I have to say, that I did a book by Albert Camus for A-Level, and as a result, assume that most people just want to do a good job, which, as I understand it, was Camus' Honest Joe philosophy of life. And if that doesn't win me maximum points for pretentious name drop of the the year, I don't know what does. Anyway, I think it explains Northumberland's crazy laughing, tears, coin sing in the Cambridge marketplace, just like his father. He had tried with all his soul to raise his reputation and that of his family to the heights by faithfully implementing the orders of his masters, Henry VIII and Edward VI. Ironically, under the arch-monster, apparently, Henry VIII, that brought him nothing but success. But for his efforts for the boy king, just like his father, doing his duty brought him dishonour and death. It is a wicked irony. Thirdly, the traditional story belittles Mary. Throw your mind back to Mary and the aborted flight in 1550. Her rushing to and fro, oh, what shall I do, unable to decide. And this is what her enemies expected of her. They thought she was going to do a Gloria Gaynor, and they badly underestimated her. Mary had courage aplenty when the way forward was clear. She had determination in spades. By viewing her success as inevitable, we undermine her courage and her skill in winning a throne against all the odds. So why then did Mary win? The first reason, it seems to me, is the illustration that a lie told clearly and simply is much easier to sell than the complicated truth. Edward's device for the succession was perfectly legal, but it was complicated, and it flew in the face of that most English and fallible of gods, the god of common sense. Mary was the big man's daughter. Therefore, she was next in line. All that jiggery-poke, all that legal stuff was just flim-flam, smoke, mirrors, all that stands to reason. With time... No doubt the world could have been convinced that Jane was the logical choice, but there was no time. Everyone expected that Mary would be announced as the Queen. The ordinary folk never accepted Jane. Now I hear you at the back raising an objection, but these people, these ordinary folks, they had no power. This was a time of hideous repression. Well, did they not have any power? Firstly, the feelings of the ordinary people of London was reflected all over the country and in the breasts of many of the gentry classes. It's clear that if she'd won, Queen Jane would have had a lot of work to win round many of the regions. Secondly, that atmosphere in London as the councillors went around their work was sullen and resentful. It must have played its part in breaking their resolve. The other major reason, I think, was Northumberland's failure to prepare. Now, Eric Ives makes the point that it was difficult to prepare, difficult to arrest Mary before Edward died. 
but to a more unconventional or wicked person that had done that anyway, because if Jane was to be queen, it was the right thing to do. The defection of the fleet and delivery to Mary of artillery was a key point also, which convinced Northumberland that he'd blown it, but he should never have allowed it to get to that point. The same forces that had tried to maintain Jane on her throne now swung over to Mary. While the capital waited nervously for their new queen, preachers who warned of coming disaster were locked up, and a man was locked in the pillory for speaking against Mary, just as Gilbert Potter had been for Jane. Finally, on the 3rd of August, Mary rode into London in triumph, riding on a palfrey with gold embroidered trappings reaching to the ground. Included in the massive procession, a display of wealth, power and legitimacy, came the Princess Elizabeth. As Mary came near the tower, with the cheers of her subjects ringing out, there was a piece of pure theatre. Outside the tower was a short row of Mary's subjects, kneeling on the ground in the position of supplicants for mercy. There was Stephen Gardner, Bishop of Winchester, ex-Bishop of Winchester. There was Bishop Edmund Bonner, ex-Bishop of London. There was the Duchess of Somerset and... There was the octogenarian Duke of Norfolk. Remember him? Mary shared her family's sense of drama. She kissed each one of them. These are my prisoners, she declared, and she set them free. Great stuff. Interestingly, on the 8th of August, Mary allowed Edward VI funeral to go ahead, according to Cranmer's 1552 rite. I suppose this is the response to being allowed to celebrate the Mass while she was at large. Mary, however, herself stayed away. It was Cranmer who presided over the funeral, and I would like to bet that the back of his neck felt itchy, and that would be the crosshairs of the sights of the high-powered sniper's rifle that Mary was looking through in the tower. Anyway, we're not going to talk about the detail of Mary's reign, so back to Northumberland first. I should say, though, first, that Mary issued a sort of reluctant general pardon. It was a pardon that if it was to be represented as a kind of physical object as part of a tea service, for example, it would resemble the sort of doily that my granny might once have used under the ham sandwiches. It had so many holes and exceptions that putting your affairs in order was the only sensible response. Some of Mary's gentlewomen thought it worth appealing for Northumberland's life, and indeed the lives of his sons were indeed spared. But Northumberland's own life, well, that would have required an act of mercy that would have warranted some sort of statue angel of the north kind of level. On the 18th of August, Northumberland, his eldest son and the Marquis of Northampton were taken by boat to Westminster Hall and there in front of their assembled peers and an audible atmosphere of relief, they were all put in trial. Presiding over the court was the 80-year-old Thomas Howard, Duke of Norfolk. How he must have been reflecting the ups and downs of life. Northumberland was not well received by his peers. One observer noted that the panel did no more than touch the odd cap. To a man of Norfolk status, this was a severe insult. Nonetheless, he put his best foot forward by asking how could he be charged with treason when he was acting with the full agreement of counsel, many of whom sat in judgment on him now, and he was acting under the royal seal. It was a pretty unanswerable point. Norfolk dismissed the very idea by loftily declaring that it was a usurper's seal, that of Jane, and Dudley was therefore guilty. The irony, again, was that John Dudley was therefore convicted with exactly the same injustice as his father, carrying out the orders of his royal master. Probably I've made that point too many times. Obviously, both other men went the same way. Incidentally, you might remember that the Marquis of Northampton was the man married to Anne Boucher, 
who had run off with her paramour. Northampton, after years of trying, had finally gained the right to remarry. Well, Mary was having none of that. She dragged poor Anne back to court to be her lady-in-waiting, and she ordered both of them back together again, a situation neither of them wanted, of course. Mary then pardoned Northampton, subject to a heavy fine, which is what she would do with all the lords crowding out the tower, with the exception of just three. At eight o'clock in the morning the very next day, Tower Hill was heaving, heaving with people all come to see the extraordinary spectacle. 10,000 people apparently turned up to see the fun. At eight, though, the only sound to be heard was a big groan. Oh, the execution was delayed. They should all go home. Northumberland had declared his wish to hear a mass. Well, good golly, Miss Molly, you can imagine the dribbling on behalf of Mary's advisers. He was a propaganda coup and make no mistake. A piece of theatre ensued at the chapel of St Peter Ad Vincula in the Tower Precinct. All the accused, John Gates, Thomas Palmer, Dudley, Northampton, were led through the courtyard and a mass was performed in front of a crowd that included, incidentally, Somerset sons watching the killer of their father destroyed. From her room, Jane Grey might well have watched the whole affair as well. Northumberland came to his turn to take the sacrament and as he did so, he turned dramatically to the crowd. I do most faithfully believe this is the very right and true way out of which true religion you and I have been seduced these 16 years past by false and erroneous preaching, and so on and so forth. That evening, he wrote for mercy with a letter as abject as you can imagine, to a degree that would have even made Thomas Cromwell blush. Oh, that it would please her good grace to give me life, yea, the life of a dog that I might but live and kiss her feet. O oh, my good Lord, remember how sweet life is, and how bitter ye contrary. Why, gentle listeners? Not the feet-kissing part, who am I to judge? After all, I suspect I'd be up for that in the circumstances. No, the conversion part. There are four broad lines of thought. Firstly, that he'd never been a committed prot anyway, so now seemed a good time to fess up. A second is that he was perfectly committed, but that he was making a desperate last-minute bid for mercy. Third, that he was doing his very best for his family. And finally, that he was genuinely converted. He had seen the light. The first, a cynical explanation, is successfully exploded to my satisfaction at least. The length of his support for reformed religion and the weight of the evidence just seems far too much to reject. The second and third, desperate for mercy for himself, just seems extraordinary in the sense that it never, never worked. And Dudley would have known that full well. He'd have to be in a complete dipstick to think he had any chance, though there is his letter, of course. No, I think we're left with either a bid to save his family or a genuine conversion. My lodestone in all of this, Eric Ives, makes the point that the whole treason and execution process was heavily formulaic, with declarations made that were simply a blind that allowed the monarch to show the family mercy. So he reckons Dudley was making a bid for mercy for the family, with the added spicy suggestion that he was actually offered a reprieve by the Crown. He went through with a charade and then was knifed anyway. It's clear that when Dudley learned later that evening that he was going to be executed, despite his letter, he was shocked and surprised. I must admit, I tend to go for genuine conversion. If he'd been trying to save his family, you'd think he'd say that rather than beg for his own mercy, but we'll never know. All we do know is that it earned Jane's contempt, for she would prove to have a soul far more steely. 
The following morning, then, the 2nd of August, 1553, three men approached the scaffold. John Dudley, John Gates, and a man called Thomas Palmer, slightly oddly. I'll come to the slightly oddly thing in just a moment. As it happens this time, the signature dish was to be eaten first, and John Dudley stepped up to the gallows. There was no more abject submission, but there was the normal process of the submission of the Tudor executee. He leant on the rail, and he told the assembled crowd that he'd been an evil sort of chap. He continued again to denounce those who had dragged him from the Catholic faith, and he offered up a prayer. It was perfect. The speech was written up and sent round Europe to show Protestants everywhere that it was time to return to the one true church. Now the time had come. He knelt, put his head on the block, and with one blow it was done. No doubt to a cathartic howl from the crowd. John Gates was next, and with three blows of the axe, ouch, and then came a bit of an interlude when the third victim leapt up onto the scaffold. Thomas Palmer was his name, a tall, sparky man called variously Busking Palmer for his energy and pizzazz and Long Palmer for his height. He'd had a colourful military career, not always noted for following orders, it has to be said. He was a gambler of some talent, or at least he was a better gambler than Henry VIII, off whom he took plenty of cash. The question is, why was Palmer being executed? Mary was executing just three people from the whole blessed lot. Why a figure of such relative obscurity as Palmer? The suspicion is that Palmer went because it was he that had brought Somerset's treason to the attention of his ally Dudley slash made up Somerset's treason. Dudley was killed as the principal, Gates as the manipulator of Edward VI and Palmer as the killer of Somerset. Anyway, Palmer positively leapt up onto the scaffold, gave his audience a big grin and threw his cap into the crowd and roared, God give you all good morrow! Good morrow! A few shouted back, everybody loves a show. I do not doubt I have a good morrow, and shall have, I trust, a better good evening. Which is a clumsy play on words, really, but, you know, pretty good for someone who's come to die. Palmer was having none of this shilly-shallying around. He was proud to be Protestant, and he confirmed his faith. Then he spoke of the delights he would face when he came to meet his Lord. Thou wilt sit down and behold the greatness above, the sun and moon, the stars above the firmament. And anyway... The world is altogether vanity, for in it is nothing but ambition, flattery, foolish or vainglory, provide discord, slander, boasting, hatred and malice. When he was done, he turned to the executioner. Come on, good fellow, art thou must do the deed. I forgive thee with all my heart. With a few more prayers and one more quip about how neatly his head fit the block, the blade descended and busking Palmer went to his better place, there to view the sun and moon, firmament and stars. From her position in the tower... Jane would have been able to hear the roar of the crowd as the axe fell. And that is where we'll go next week, to hear about Jane. I hope you've enjoyed the week, everybody. The story's not finished yet. But good luck, have a great week, and I'll see you next Sunday. This is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ 
the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.